Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks, and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, if you use the code PARPOLBRO10 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 10% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that definitely isn't as effective after a 12-week delay. Ugh, bloody 2021. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as Health Secretary and drawing of a Canadian in South Park, Matt Hancock, says that before we ease coronavirus regulation measures, we have to look at facts on the ground. I ask, has he been using road markings for guidance this whole time and is that why the government just keeps looking right? Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that it's taken this long, but we're finally at a stage where the government are now blaming the coronavirus for not being more cooperative. Yes, Drowndy, Walk and Work and Pension Secretary Therese Kofi is sure that they were very prepared for a pandemic, just not the one that we're currently having. Ah, how incredibly selfish of COVID-19 to turn up when the Conservatives were expecting a kinder, gentler sort of virus. You know, perhaps one that wasn't infectious, didn't kill anyone and maybe wasn't even a virus in the first place and was instead a sandwich or a discarded shoe. I mean, with that sort of a supportive and, let's face it, almost certainly British virus, this government would have tackled it in a heartbeat and, frankly, anyone who's still insisting on catching this clearly traitorous coronavirus is obviously just being unpatriotic. 
It's a nice thought that somehow had things been different and the globe had been besieged by a strain of something else, that right now the UK would be the New Zealand of the world, being able to carry on as normal and just be panicking about the destruction of the NHS, rising unemployment and Brexit, meaning that lorries are having to be reclassified as static caravans or food hospices. The reality, of course, is that even if, say, COVID-19 had just been a relatively harmless virus that could only be passed around by someone lobbing a mango directly at your knees, the Prime Minister and celebrity icon to fans of paraphilic infantilism, Boris Johnson, would have boasted early on about attending a mass mango lobbing session and how he was fine. Various MPs would have been caught out for attending private mango throwing sessions but refused to resign and schools would be told that they'd be sued if they didn't provide a full variety of tropical fruit at mealtimes delivered only by a tennis ball machine. Money would be poured into the fruit and veg markets but nowhere else and over time as the virus mutated into other fruits and it transmitted through other methods it would be the public who'd be blamed. As it is only the most irresponsible citizens who took part in the 20 a day national government campaign to boost fruit sales titled Eat Fruit to Help Oot that they told absolutely everyone to do. The UK's death toll is now one of the highest in the world, and that is, of course, the fault of the virus that has sadly and tragically killed so many people. Without it, we'd only be seeing excess deaths when it came to homeless that the government refused to help with, food poverty, ableist policies or unsafe cladding. You know, all the things that make Britain very much what it is. Like how some countries have a certain amount of deaths every year from poisonous spiders or falling chairs or something, we're just aware that to maintain our traditions, we're quite happy to let people die rather than make a fuss. So, I suppose it should be reassuring that our leadership is trying to keep that attitude going throughout this crisis, never once wanting to offer a minute's silence in memory and making sure that everyone knows, as the Home Secretary and the sort of person who'd list bear-baiting as one of her favourite sports, Pretty Patel, as she said, there are a number of reasons the UK has had over 100,000 deaths. Yes, yes there are pretty, it's just that unfortunately all of them work in the Cabinet. Of course, we mustn't compare international death rates as everyone counts them differently, apparently. I mean, some countries might not count deaths where the person who died didn't actually die or was so boring that they'd seemed dead for years. So we can't say for sure that the UK has one of the highest death tolls from COVID-19 in the world because even when you take into account all the statistics that say we definitely do, you have to remember that other countries value their citizens' lives even more. So perhaps one of their deaths will count as about 10 of ours in comparison. Obviously, as you know, uh, we should compare international vaccination rates as we in the UK have done some of the mostest in the whole world. You know, if you don't count that most people have only had one jab and aren't actually vaccinated yet and may not get a second jab for 12 more weeks, which the British Medical Association say was difficult to justify. And experts in Israel who've been looking at results of mass vaccinations say is very optimistic. But if you don't count those things and you understand that by just making sure as many people get the first jab as possible, that we can all agree that it allows the government to say they've done something very well. And if anyone dies after being half vaccinated, then it's their fault and their bodies weren't trying hard enough. Israel is seeing a drop in hospitalizations for the over 60s three weeks after getting their first jab. So maybe the British government think that by extending that for a further nine weeks, then they can save some hospitalizations for the spring in case the NHS starts to get bored with having less to do. In the northeast in Yorkshire, they're having their vaccine supply halved so that other places can catch up because they've been vaccinating too successfully and that sort of efficiency just shows everyone up so they have to be punished. The government are very much the teachers that would give a class detention because someone finished their work early as they found it lacking and so decided to start talking. But if the whole class did well, the government would then immediately claim credit for it. This is, of course, a very silly analogy. The government would never be teachers, as they'd only do jobs that they think have value in life, like working for arms dealers or using public funds to not carry out tests. There will be more deaths, said Boris Johnson, for the first time ever promising something that he can definitely deliver. 
It is genuinely tricky to know if that was a warning or a pledge when he said it, as in the same week during a visit to Didsbury, he informed them too that more flooding would come. As though he's realised that by being a prophet of doom, he doesn't really have to do anything about the consequences and can defend himself by saying, oh, don't shoot the messenger whenever he's questioned about it. He could at least have been useful and let the local residents use him as a sandbag. I mean, at the very least. Johnson also insisted last week that this would be a phenomenal year for Britain. And while I hate to say it, he's likely not wrong about that either, as phenomena is something that is observed to exist or happen, even if the cause is in question. And while many of us wouldn't question how we got here, the Conservative fingers are pointing anywhere but in the mirror. If it's not the virus's fault for being a virus, then it's your fault for being one of a handful of people who are breaking the rules because your boss is making you. And if you really cared, then you'd lose your job and starve rather than catch a virus in a poorly protected job. I mean, take staff at the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency, where over 500 workers have contracted COVID since the start of the pandemic, as management have insisted they turn their test and trace apps off and stay at their non-socially distant offices. You could rightly say, well, the management should be reprimanded for endangering lives, or that the Transport Secretary and Roland Rat's withered twin, Grant Shapps, should have intervened, or at least made a comment since the story was revealed. But, you know, a Transport Secretary can't step in. That would go against his job position, which requires him focusing on driving home inadequate policies. Instead, it must be the staff's fault, because if they were more considerate, then they'd just not catch the virus in the first place, allowing them to keep up the really important job of supplying people with vehicle licences and penalties for journeys that they can't make because we're all in lockdown. There's every chance, of course, that they didn't catch the virus at work, but instead at all these house parties that barely anyone is having, which is why the news is insisting on endlessly reporting on the two or three that have happened, and Priti Patel has announced a new £800 fine for anyone attending house parties of more than 15 people. So obviously, you all need to behave and only attend ones of exactly 15 or less. Or better still, ones that aren't in houses at all. I mean, maybe have a bus party on a bus like the Venga Boys, though I suppose that might need a DVLA licence, which could now take a while. Or have it in a church and throw in a prayer or two so it's a totally legal public worship. Hey, maybe make it an office party and get your hundreds of staff to all try and issue vehicle licences throughout, and then the Home Office will be totes fine with it. The government are, of course, doing everything they can to make things better and safer, like launching a new advert to help hammer home the idea that we all need to be staying at home like pretty much everyone actually is, telling us all to look COVID sufferers in the eye and tell them the risk isn't real or that you never bend the rules or basically all the things that cabinet ministers and their special advisers have done for the past year, but it's okay as they can't maintain eye contact with anyone that's poorer than them, so it doesn't apply. Frankly, if you're looking someone right in the eye to tell them that you keep a safe distance, chances are you're too close to them in the first place, and if anything, these adverts are going to make things worse. They've also definitely thought about, or at least discussed, tightening travel restrictions, maybe, possibly, with potential plans for a hotel quarantine for people arriving in the UK. Though they could just use that Ibis I once stayed in on the motorway, where I was too scared to leave my room because of the man endlessly screaming in the very stained hallway. According to Priti Patel, she actually recommended to the Prime Minister that the government close borders way back in last March as the pandemic started. But to be fair to Johnson, I'm certain that she shouts close the borders as every other sentence and in her sleep, so it would have been hard for him to tell if it was a useful suggestion or just her default greeting. As for schools, Conservative MPs have demanded that the government set out a route map for a return, which seems unnecessary as kids should easily remember how to get there again, even if the Cabinet haven't got a clue where they're going. The Prime Minister insists that he wants to get schools open as fast as possible, but can't guarantee that it'll be before Easter, which we'd have known was the case even if he said he could guarantee it. Schools have never actually been closed, what with them being open for the children of key workers and also remote learning for pupils, but I guess Conservatives are just annoyed about it because it must be galling for them to have to pay all that money and still have to see their kids. 
The Children's Commissioner for England has warned that schools being closed is making children feel isolated and withdrawn. But on the plus side, that should fit them in perfectly with the national attitude of post-Brexit Britain. The government are also still discussing whether or not to keep the universal credit uplift of an extra £20 a week or not, because on one hand it helps families survive this increasingly difficult situation, but on the other hand it helps families survive this increasingly difficult situation and they do have a reputation to uphold. Former government adviser and definitely a school governor who hasn't had a child at the school for decades, Dame Louise Casey, has warned that not keeping the increase would mean the Conservatives would be known as the nasty party again, which could be damaging for them. Really? I mean, I'd have thought it'd be an upgrade from us having to refer to them as, yeah, you know, the ones that let 100,000 people die and gave all the cash to their pals party. But then what do I know about semantics? Chancellor and what a Jar Jar Binks was a Sith Lord, Rishi Sunak, has said that they can't keep the life-changing £20 uplift because the cost would be the same as adding 1p to income tax or 5p to fuel. Well, you know, we can't have that then, can we? I mean, how on earth would all his tax-dodging friends cope with spending more money to drive around pointing and laughing at people queuing for food banks? I mean, you may as well ban all the fun, right? Instead, Sunak has proposed a one-off payment of £1,000, which will cancel out the £1,000 that claimants would lose if they cut the £20 a week, because Sunak thinks that then they can spend it all at once and help the economy, and then the Conservatives can blame people on benefits for spending all their money at once and can justify changing it to giving them vouchers only for chicken feed and candles. Therese Kofi, on the other hand, thinks the uplift should just be cut and no extras given, because frankly it's all their own fault that a pandemic decimated the economy and took them out of work, and if they really wanted to be rich they'd have been born that way. Kofi is another who is certain that Britain's only got a high death toll because actually we're all obese and old, which at least gives us some hope that she's not got long left and I'm certain she won't want any help in dealing with Covid as that'd just make her selfish and dependent. What is a relief is that the Department of International Trade now finally have an official plan for those firms struggling to deal with Brexit costs, which is that those firms should move to the EU. Yeah, Who knew that when they said Brexit would be great for British businesses, it was because they got to escape to somewhere nicer and sunnier. And when they said it'd be great for British workers, it's because now every day will be a day off. The Prime Minister is still certain that everything will be good for all of us though, and in particular, the currently very angry fishing industry that feel they unfairly took the bait and subsequently found themselves gasping for air, but I suppose karma and all that, yeah? Boris Johnson told the sector that Brexit will turn out to be El Dorado for the fishing industry, but by my calculations, that means it'll only last for one disappointing season and then get permanently cancelled. That's a gag there just for the middle-aged listeners. Sorry, I mean another gag there just for the middle-aged listeners. I'm so old. I'm so old. Without fish to sell and all our small businesses likely to relocate elsewhere, just what will we as a country trade? Well, thankfully, the Conservatives voted to remove the NHS protections from the trade bill, which means any of it could now be lumped in with any future deal with another country. Then again, maybe I'm being naive, and what better way to reduce the number of COVID hospital admissions than by reducing the number of hospitals there are, as each one of them is sold off to be turned into luxury flats, where once a year a tax-dodging billionaire can stay in it and point out the window at all the people who could really do in being in A&E, if one existed. The government very narrowly avoided a defeat on legislation that could have meant even more dubious trading arrangements though, as 33 Conservatives were very keen to remove a Lords Amendment from the Trade Bill, blocking us from trading with countries that have been ruled to commit genocide. I think they have a point though, as, I mean, surely we should give these mass-murdering governments a second chance, as there's every possibility they'll be like us, who just pretend they never did any of that in a few years, and insist that actually the problem is people being woke, and that statues deserve more care than children in need. And then, you know, we'd be losing out on potential trading twinsies. Over in America, scorched-earth gibbosity Donald Trump left the White House for the final time, in part to the sounds of Frank Sinatra's My Way, which is an ideal choice, as Sinatra too was an entertainer that was involved in organised crime. 
As much as his time in office was a general horror show, I think it's important to find the positives in absolutely everything. I mean, in my opinion, the Trump presidency has had a very useful effect on the plausibility of the actions of villains or idiots in films. I mean, previously I'd have thought, who would steal fertilised dinosaur embryos? Surely no one would feed a mogwai after midnight. But now, after four years of Trump, I think, oh yeah, I know that guy. Joe Biden, aka, oh, that's what happened to the robot from Ulysses 31, in yet another reference just for middle-aged people, is now the 46th elected US president after his inauguration, where I'm not saying the bar was low, but he spoke in full sentences that we all understood and therefore immediately seemed like an improvement. The old rich white man from one of the only two parties that ever win announced that we have saved democracy, and he used his speech to call for unity across all sides because nothing stops fascism like just joining together with them, right? I mean, I'm sure that World War II would have been over super quickly if we'd all just joined the Nazis. Yeah? Yeah? Stop the shouting and lower the temperatures, said Biden, presumably as a reference to Trump's years in power, but it could have also just been something a man of his age would say, and there's every chance he then complained about the kids on the bus and waved his fist at some clouds. On his first day in office, Biden used executive orders to reverse lots of Trump's damaging policies, and he outlined his economic rescue package that will cut child poverty in half, but obviously will still keep half of it just to please Republican voters and get them on side. Boris Johnson spoke to Biden on Saturday in the new president's first call with the European leader, and the prime minister said that he looked forward to deepening the long-standing alliance. But after previously insulting Biden's pal Obama and being super pally with Trump, I'm not really sure how Johnson could get any deeper. One interviewer asked Johnson if Biden was too woke for him because there's nothing more confusing than finding out the right wing both think the new president is sleepy and woke at the same time. But Johnson said there was nothing wrong with being woke but that it was important to stick up for your history. So I'm sure any day now he'll be defending all the past racist comments he's pretended he didn't say and that time he tried to get a friend get a journalist beaten up. The Prime Minister's official spokesperson said that Johnson doesn't really know what the term woke means, which is clear by how often his government have declared a war on it, something they can only win by being completely and utterly ignorant of progressive values. Oh, oh well, oh, one nil to them I guess. According to ex-civil service head and half-inflated armband Mark Sedwell, Johnson is very, very glad to see Trump go. But it's hard not to wonder if that's just because now he can offer him a job as a post-Brexit trade advisor. The SNP have unveiled they will hold a legal referendum on Scottish independence if they get a majority at Holyrood after May's election. I'm assuming the campaign will largely just be pointing at Westminster and going, I mean, just fucking look at that. Boris Johnson has said that he would oppose this happening, but if the SNP take office, they will request a Sector 30 order for a referendum, part of the Scotland Act 1998, that allows Holyrood to pass laws normally reserved in Westminster, as that would leave the UK government with no moral or democratic justification for denying it. Okay, but the only hurdle the SNP might have is that I don't think Johnson's government have ever had moral or democratic justification for doing anything or been remotely bothered that they haven't. You may as well be telling them that if they don't do something then vulnerable people might die, to which Johnson would probably respond with a and carry on entertaining himself with a fortune teller fish he found in a drawer. The Prime Minister has said several times that he won't agree for a referendum on Scottish independence for a generation, but considering how many he's let die from Covid, that could only be in a couple of years, so it might be worth the SNP waiting it out. Still though, the Prime Minister is going to make a trip to Scotland next week in order to try and rally support for the Union, so I reckon Scotland will be independent by the end of February. In other news, research says talking can spread COVID as much as coughing, so fingers crossed Parliament from now on will have to be done in semaphore. It wouldn't be that different to now when the Prime Minister's career is increasingly flagging. Labour leader and patio heater Keir Starmer has been told to self-isolate for the third time, but that shouldn't be hard for him as with the Conservatives still ahead in all the polls despite everything, Starmer's seemingly managed to alienate himself from most voters already. 
And as questions arise over whether local elections will happen in England in May, Glastonbury Festival announces that it is cancelled yet again this year. It's very worrying to see that the coronavirus has now advanced to the pyramid stage. Holla, Pol Pol Broads. Uh, how goes you in these snowy times? Um, I'm aware lots of you have had snowy times already this year, but here in the south, we had our one day of snow yesterday and it came down thick and fast. Um, but due to London prices, it won't settle for long. My agent, uh, sorry, daughter, was delighted and immediately wanted to go out and it ran around for 20 minutes and then immediately wanted to go back into the warm and watch TV. And I'm so chuffed that she takes after me by easily letting bundles of optimistic enthusiasm uh, get absolutely crushed by the weight of reality. Oh, I'm sure she'll be excited about snow again when climate change allows it to happen in three years' time for a whole afternoon. I think this is now like the seven millionth week in January, isn't it? But it's very hard to tell in lockdown. And it's weird to will time away, um, you know, considering how pressure is. But dear God, spring really can't come soon enough this year, can it? I mean, not too soon, obviously, as then all my eco-anxiety will come back um, and wasps as well. But I'm just saying, like being stuck indoors during this winter, it is so hard not to waste time looking at stupid, provocative news articles like the one the other day about how roads are going to be named after recipients of the Victoria Cross as part of the war on the woke. I mean, aside from it not being so much a war as people just trying to get on with making things better as Telegraph readers stand across the road from them yelling about how they're being oppressed by other people not being as selfish and inconsiderate as them, which makes them unfairly stand out as bastards. Aside from that aspect of the war on woke, where some people are so angry about things that aren't happening, also... I just don't know how many people give a shit. I mean, really, this is what baffles me on a very regular basis. It's just how much money, time and effort could be saved if various initiatives or headline vomits had spent two minutes before being publicised where they just asked even five random people, but do you actually give a shit, though? I mean, barely anyone gives a shit what their road name is, do they? I mean, aside from a kid I went to school with who lived on Ennis Road because we all kept laughing at them when a P was repeatedly graffitied on all the signs. Also, shout out to my school friend Anthony, whose surname was the same name as the road he lived on, and whenever he got stopped by the police because he was a black teenager and that is depressing systematic racism for you, um, they'd ask for his name and his address and then never believe him. They'd assume he was making the second one up. Uh, it was bleak. But luckily, he found it very funny, so we all did too. I'm just saying that otherwise, no one cares about your road names, do you? I mean, give all our streets numbers or made-up words or names of household objects or your favourite swears. In fact, definitely the latter. That would be brilliant. I would happily spell out on phone calls, yes, that's 11B Fuckity Park. Yes, F-U-C-K-I-T-Y Park etc etc you know if you're regularly livid that road names are too woke for you then maybe don't live on a road it's obviously too much for you isn't it go live in a field and shout at birds god it must be so exhausting being some people really sorry uh, my agent's at nursery and my wife is working so i've got no one to grumble about things to so here we are um of course i can't really grumble at you for being here and listening and i am forever grateful and thank you so much for your many many nice comments about the interview with musa last week um i was so pleased that you liked that one and i was so chuffed to get him on the show finally i've been tracking him down for years um thank you too today for donating to the acar supporter page and taz and anonymous for your donations to the Kofi site and of course should you feel this show is deserving of your pennies then please do lob them at ko at fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or click on the ACAST supporter button thingy. Um, I'll be honest, I still don't know where it is or how you do that. So it's just a nice surprise when someone does. I think you click on a thing, but there's a chance that you shout a magic word at your phone and then it works. Or maybe you send a carrier pigeon in a specific direction during easterly wind. I just don't know. I haven't really got a clue. Um, but obviously, if you can't donate, then please give the show a nice five-star review at one of the podcast app sites, especially Apple Podcasts, because they still have the monopoly on these podcast things. Um, and or indeed or, uh, just tell other people you know to tune into this here show and then hit subscribe. 
For one day, if enough of you do that again, it may end up on a podcast chart once more. Uh, though obviously then this show would become mainstream and that could lead to me selling out. But I have to say, that is a risk I'm prepared to take for you people. I mean, wait, no, obviously I wouldn't. Um, obviously. <laughs> Right, uh, quick admin times. And look, it's the same admins as last week, but there are still tickets, in fact, so, so many tickets, available for the online podcast as part of the Leicester Comedy Festival on February the 6th at 4.30pm. Please come along virtually and watch from the comfort of your own home in your own pants, and there'll be an opportunity to ask me and the guest, or potentially guests, uh, questions too. Um, I've got no idea how much tickets are. I haven't checked anything this week. I haven't looked online at all. I don't I don't care. You can do that. Um, but if they are too expensive, then please get one and use the chat function to let me know constantly throughout the show, uh, maybe. Maybe don't do that. Um, also, this is episode three that is being sponsored by the brilliant British boxers. Um, and yes, I will do a new advert for them soon, but I quite like the big pyjama line, so it's staying. Anyway, um, the brilliant British boxers, who are ethically wonderful and politically sound, um, they're having a winter sale that means that pants are even cheaper. What more could you want? Um, I've no idea if the Parpol Bro 10 uh, 10% off code works on sale items. But hey, you may as well try. And they're doing real fancy masks free with all orders over 30 quid. So go get some nice nicks and PJs and support me and them at british-boxes.com while at the same time essentially just getting more things to sit around in win right um okay on this week's show i have a guest who not only very kindly bailed me out when the planned guest got unfortunately ill um but also just happened to be a fascinating brilliant person to speak to as well um johanna churchill nurse and photographer of the photo of her colleague melanie um, that captured the anxiety of nhs workers at the beginning of the pandemic and ended up as a beautiful mural in manchester um you might know the one if you don't pause this yes now go look it up yeah see exactly um there is also a wee bit of brexit fallout in the middle because i i know you've missed it. Yes, you have. Stop lying. Find me someone in Britain who doesn't value the NHS. And I will, well, actually, I will most likely say, why are you showing me a picture of Matt Hancock? But it goes without saying how precious the NHS is and how without it, our rather dire past year would have been even worse. Not least because then every Thursday, everyone would have been out on their doorstep clapping for Netflix, which really doesn't deserve it in the same way, although maybe it does a bit. The fact is, as all research shows, most people are keen to save the NHS, especially when that means staying at home, because that's such an easy way to save things, isn't it? It's a brilliant rescue mission. I mean, saving the planet is tons more effort. Saving the children, too. I've got one of them. I'm not even sure what I'm saving her for, but I'm hoping at some point I'll be able to swap her for a mortgage or a PlayStation 5. Of course, that's not true. I love her too much to swap her for a PlayStation 5. It'd have to come with at least two controllers and the Spider-Man game. But people are aware to an extent that the NHS is under an extreme amount of pressure, a lack of resources, beds and staff during a time when all of those things are more than necessary. But what people are less aware of is how years and years of cuts, pay freezes, increasing privatisation and rhetoric and policies that have put many foreign born healthcare workers off working in a system that seems to want to charge them for the privilege of looking after others have all brought us to this point where those who are saving lives are often also having to use food banks, struggling to pay rent and suffering from clinical depression, PTSD and anxiety from absolutely everything they're having to deal with. It's very clear that what the NHS needs is someone to actually look after it and nurse it better. But this government don't really want to pay someone to do that when they could just sell it to America so they don't have to think about it anymore and it becomes a subsidiary of Disney where you can't see how tired the staff are because they're all wearing giant character suits. Though to be fair, that would still be better PPE than they've been provided with for the past year. One of the big issues has been that until very recently there's been a shortage of reporters showing just what's happening in hospitals and medical centres. That is, of course, in big part due to health and safety reasons, but there are also many, many instances of ministers refusing access. Because if you could see just how bad things were, then maybe you'd be asking too just why we all did a Christmas. 
Instead, it's been down to accounts from doctors, nurses and staff themselves across social media. Oh, and a casualty episode that showed you don't always need a helicopter crashing into A&E to convincingly show a stressful hospital situation. So how do you get people to understand the reality of this COVID crisis if you can't show them the reality of it directly? And actually, shouldn't we at least have asked Netflix to commission some inside reporting and then everyone would definitely have seen it and taken it seriously? This week, I spoke to Johanna Churchill. If you don't know her name, you might well know her photography, particularly the iconic picture she took in March last year of her nursing colleague Melanie in full PPE as she prepared a COVID clinic in southwest London at the beginning of the pandemic. The photograph became a defining image of the time and still is. And while I'm limited in my ability to describe art, what I can tell you is having looked at it many, many times in the last few days alone, the anxiety, uncertainty and feelings of pressure that Melanie's expression gives you is pretty overwhelming. The image was commissioned for the Sunday Telegraph's Hold Still project, supported by the Duchess of Cambridge and the National Portrait Gallery, which aimed to give an image of the UK under lockdown. As a result, Johanna's photo featured on billboards and screens across the country and a giant mural of the image was put up in Manchester's northern quarter. Johanna's been a nurse for over 10 years and so I asked her all about what it's like working in the NHS this past year, why images are so important in communicating situations like this to the public and what she thinks about my new pitch of ENT flicks. Uh, OK, I didn't ask her about the last one. It wouldn't really make it ear, nose and throat. Never. Sort of works. Anyway, what I should say, uh, to give myself a small get-out clause, uh, is that Joanna very kindly agreed to this interview quite last minute. And as you'll hear, some of my questions are not that brilliantly worded, um, though Joanna does a fantastic job of answering them anyway. What do you mean my questions are never worded brilliantly? Ugh, you lot. Anyway, I'm very, very grateful to her for having the time, and I found this a very fascinating and moving conversation with her. Here is Joanna. Hi, Joanna. Um, I think the first thing that I want to talk to you about is obviously your um, incredible and evocative photograph, um, which uh, became very well known around the country. Um, your picture of your colleague, Melanie, um, which was taken right at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. Um, and I, when I read an interview with you, which I think was with the Nursing Times, you said that your picture... Um, you took your picture to try and get across the anxiety of NHS workers and patients that was experienced early on in the pandemic. Um, and it's quite a question to begin with, I suppose. But I just wonder if you feel like a year on from that picture, do you feel like people are understanding what um, what yourself and what the NHS are going through now? I think it's probably for an outsider really difficult to understand what's going on in the NHS right now. Um, I guess... At the start, there was an awful lot of anxiety um, um, among all of us all, and we didn't know what was coming. And we're in a different bit of a different position now. We do know what's coming, and it's still a very scary time. I think it it just must be very difficult as a um, as a, a person who's told to stay indoors and you know not leave the house to actually know what's going on. And there's, there's a bit of there's a bit of a lack of images around. Um, hospitals at the moment so yeah definitely I, I think it's I think it's a really tricky thing for the general population to understand. Is that I mean because you said obviously things are still incredibly anxious but for very different reasons um, and I, I can't imagine what it was like last March but I'm guessing you're still feeling under an awful lot of pressure right now you, yourself and your colleagues and I know you're not on the you're on a, a you're not on the front line of the Covid wards but you know how is it feeling for you now at the hospitals how are you feeling working there so I work in a I work in general practice um so it's a little bit different for me but it is um it's different in in terms of so in March we had a lot of um 
had a, we had a lot of instructions coming our way. We had a lot of information coming our way. It was a little bit information overload. He didn't really know what it meant. He just started implementing things and then new instructions came to implement something else. It was a lot of um, trying to comfort your colleagues. It was a lot of um, trying to comfort patients. Patients were really frightened. I've never worked in a situation in general practice where, you know, half of your staff are off sick. You're answering the phones, you're a receptionist as well as a cleaner and a nurse. And you're actually answering the phones to patients who have questions just questions about what's happening. Am I in danger? What should I do? That's, you know, that's quite, it's quite a heavy burden to carry as a healthcare professional when you actually don't know yourself. And this is all new information to us. And we had to disseminate all of this new information in bite-sized pieces to people who were ill. And it was just a really unusual circumstance to be in. And I mean, we don't, we're in a different position now. We know a bit more, but I don't know. I think with the new strain, um, there's new pressures on us to uh, learn how to um, give the vaccines on top of the workload that we're already doing. Um, it's just, I guess, it's just it is different now, but it's um, it's sort of still. <laughs> a bit scary for everyone and the new strain I think is is wiped out in terms of numbers of people looking after people it's wiped out half the staff in some places I mean I know somewhere where there's five receptionists off and somewhere else where seven receptionists have been off and you know that's a really significant number when you've only got 12 receptionists or you've only got 10 receptionists that's a huge number of people yeah it's massive I mean one of the things I feel just from and as I said, I, you know, my understanding of it is limited to being an outsider who's, who's staying at home. Um, but it just sounds exhausting. And like, do, do you feel that you've had any respite at all in, in the past year? It feels like it's been relentless for everyone in the NHS. To be honest, yeah. I feel like this last year has been one long day at work. That's how I usually describe it to people. It just feels like it's just been one long day at work. I mean, I'm not working in ITU so I can't speak for people working in ITU but I have worked in hospitals before and I'm fairly sure that there are people who are diligently standing over bedsides monitoring the urine outfit of a patient having not been to the toilet in the last eight hours themselves and I know what it's like to work in those types of environments and I my heart goes out to them I bet they're under enormous pressure right now yeah I, I i can't imagine i'm i'm in in awe of it i um it, it does uh yeah my, my days are generally waking up and going oh i'm stuck at home again <laughs> it's a very different <laughs> it's a very different scenario um and i don't know how people are doing it and i i wondered how you feel like morale has been because i just i i suppose it's part of me i i don't know how you're all still working in the nhs i'm very pleased that you are but there's a bit of me that would sort of think there must be go through your mind going oh i don't want to work in this scenario ever again in my life it's just been a bit of a slog <laughs> like uh, it's just at the start i think morale was really good because um people thought well we'll get through this and you know as much as people there are people that want to belittle the clapping it, it it was a morale boost it was nice to know that people were out in the streets and had your back and feel feel like people were there for you and thinking about you but because it's gone on so long it's quite hard to expect people to 
sort of maintain that same level of concern for you for that period of time. So, yeah, I mean, it just feels long. It feels really long. Relentless is probably the best word I could use to describe it. It feels like it's been relentless. And there's so many patients now that are coming in having had complications as well from their diabetes, from their, not their diabetes, rather, their, from their, um, from their experience with COVID, they're, they're coming in having had complications with questions that I'm not able to answer. Sorry, is that from having had COVID and now it's causing sort of other issues like sort of long COVID symptoms or is it is it from other things that they've also been doing in this kind of different life that we're having? Well, you've got some situations where, say, people have been at home with pre-diabetes, they've then developed diabetes having not gone out and been, you know, in a position where they're not controlling their diet in the way that they would if they had their normal routines. So they then develop diabetes. They then can catch something like COVID. So they not only get into the other side of having had, you know, awful respiratory symptoms with COVID, they're then potentially having to manage this new condition because they developed diabetes during the lockdown or because the COVID spiked their blood sugars and they became diabetic during that period of time. Or you've got people with long-term respiratory problems or cardiac problems at the other side or there's you know it's been quite well documented that there's been lots of people experiencing major fatigue problems at the other side as well so yeah I mean and there's an awful lot of questions that we just simply don't have the answer to at the moment and that's got to be very hard especially you know I suppose in your position uh, and your colleagues you're seen as the people that we go to for reassurance and for information and if you don't have that information and you you aren't sure of what's going on that's got to be quite bewildering for you yeah it's just a really unusual circumstance usually the, you know there's guidelines that you can refer to and at the moment you are just genuinely saying we just have to do investigations and, and we just have to see what happens we, we, at the moment we don't know I mean, obviously, if they've developed something like diabetes, then at least we know how to manage those things. We'd know how those things work. But um, in terms of post-COVID complications, we don't necessarily know the answers. Sure, sure, of course. And, and, and uh, you mentioned earlier about the clapping for the NHS, and I, um, and that was like a really big moment. Um, and I know like my whole street came out for it. Was it... But in the kind of long term, because there was this big sort of narrative about healthcare workers are being heroes, but at the same time, the government weren't sort of very keen on giving nurses a pay rise or doing any of the things that might help you, you know, deal with life, I think, really, if further down the line. was Did you sort of feel, you said that the, the clapping was really helpful. And, and do you think it, do you still feel that way now, like a year on, or do you view it kind of differently with perhaps the way in which the NHS is being treated otherwise? Well, I think it's always nice to be appreciated. It's always nice that people are nice. It's always nice that someone calls up and says, I'm so terribly sorry to trouble you at this time, but I need this. You know, it's nice when people are nice, but it's also nice to be respected for the job that you do. It's nice for you to be able to take a lunch break. It's nice for you to not have to use a food bank as a single mother working as a nurse. It's nice for you to be able to, if you do catch COVID working on the front lines, to be able to take sick pay and still be able to feed yourself. You know, I mean, some people don't have sick cover. They don't have enough food to get by. 
that's that's not okay as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, it's very nice to be on the receiving end of the clapping and, and the appreciation, but I don't think that people are asking very much if they just want to be able to feed their kids, especially when they're putting their lives on the line. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree with you. And I, it sort of, it makes me angry that, you know, in, in my opinion, my personal opinion would be that, you know, the people that are saving lives, we sh- should be the ones that we treasure. That I, I genuinely don't understand why you don't have the highest salaries in the country, but that's my personal thing. <laughs> it, always, it always sort of drives me mad. You're saving lives every day. Surely that should be worth a lot more, but um, sadly not, sadly not. But hey, um, but yeah, I, 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 one of the things, I mean, you're, your photo is it really um i suppose it sort of pierces is probably the right word it, it just cuts right through as it give you real emotion of anxiety of concern there's a lot of um emotion in melanie's eyes in the picture that you took and i i wondered how you feel that you know you mentioned earlier that there's not that much imagery that I feel like the last couple of weeks there's been a bit more of the news of what it's like on hospital wards what it's like within different parts of hospitals and and GPs and um but we haven't really had a lot of that in the past year and do do you think the lack of exposure has had a a definite effect into into how we've been treating this virus there was a lot of it in Italy wasn't there the imagery and there was a lot of it in the US but we seem to be slightly lacking in in documentary photography of those moments and I think the sentiment was probably correct in in terms of people were saying excuse me people were saying we want to keep as many people safe as possible we can't just let people on towards to take photographs completely understand infection control reasons you don't want to put someone's life at risk but you know we send photographers to war zones and we send them there for a reason they come back with information and that information is so vital in giving us an idea of what we need to you know think about and what's happening if people don't see it and they don't feel like they're experiencing part of it like you said if you're just stuck at home um told not to leave the house then I'm not sure how much we can expect people to understand it then so I I just think it it to some extent I think it's really great that I got an opportunity to use my camera to express what I was you know feeling and going through at the time and what people like Melanie were experiencing but also you know documentary photographers are there for a reason and I think we've maybe missed out a little on communicating how tough things have been because of the lack of imagery. I mean, we live in a world, a society now that absolutely operates by imagery. It's everywhere. And for there to be a lack of it in this area is a bit odd, isn't it? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with you in a minute, but first... Aside from the fact that this brain box here, yes, I am referring to myself as a brain box, and let me have it, just this once, come on. Aside from the fact that this brain box here future-proofed this jingle and section title by calling it Brexit Fallout, so it can technically keep going until every single iota of Fallout is finished, aside from that, uh, Brexit is, I'm afraid, still happening. Yes, I know you all thought it was done, but it's like one of those films where they say you thought it was safe to return to any conversation about any other sort of politics ever, but no, and then Brexit's big, galumping hand scrabbles out of the dirt where no British vegetables are being grown because it's January. There's two reasons why Brexit is not done, and in those two reasons are many, many other reasons, but let's face it, we all have lives to lead, we all have lockdowns to stare into the abyss during, and I did interview Professor Kenneth Armstrong just a few weeks ago, who summarised all of this more clearly than I ever could, and let's not stomp all over that episode with my idiot boots. So, reason one is that there are so, so, so many things yet to sort out about Brexit. Deadlines that have been extended, reviews that have to happen, and a constant awareness that if this doesn't drag on for the rest of your life, you'll run out of things to say, oh fuck, what, that's still happening about. Though obviously coronavirus runs in at a very close second place. So, much like a Marvel Cinematic Universe, as every single release looked massively unexciting, but would indeed have a major impact on everything that followed, the next first thing is in March, where the UK and the EU will agree to a Memorandum of Understanding on Financial Services Regulatory Cooperation. And the next... Sorry, what? Yeah, okay. basically it's a lot of words to say that both sides will make an agreement as to how financial services will work from now on. No, it's not interesting. But yes, it is very important, as some estimates reckon a quarter of the UK's banking sector relies on the EU for investments and all that jazz that I don't understand, but I know people in suits do it and make money from people being sad. What do you mean I need to retract the brain box comment now? Ugh, okay. Anyway, that's the first one, and then there's loads of stuff over the next many, many years, like a four-year Northern Ireland Protocol consent vote, temporary measures on data sharing, energy and fish changes that may then change in 2026, reviews on the Brexit deal itself, and then all the way until 2028 when UK courts will no longer be able to request a preliminary reference from the European Courts of Justice on issues to do with citizens' rights provisions. And then they're all going to fight Thanos. Okay, not that bit. But what this means is that some of these things are going to create even more changes for businesses and the government to prepare for, or in the case of the latter, not prepare for and some things are going to mean that we just don't really know what it will mean oh, and isn't it nice to have some certainty of uncertainty back so that's reason one why brexit is still going to go on forever and ever and ever and your children and grandchildren will still wish you'd shut up about it in 2028 but reason two uh, is because brexit is just starting to kick in which is why over the past few weeks you might have seen a number of adamant brexiteers claim that their band can't tour europe or all their fish are rotting so they can't be sold or that wine costs have risen too much for their pubs that can't open anyway or any number of things that i mean well yeah i mean isn't that what you voted for 
Okay, let's be fair, it's not just Brexit as a concept that means those things, but in large part, the deal that we have and the deal that Boris Johnson secured. And the fact that the government just thought they'd put things in place to deal with it when they got round to it. While the Foreign Secretary and flesh sock Dominic Raab said there would always be teething problems, there are issues with imports and exports that are going to affect small to medium businesses for really quite some time, leading even to the Department of International Trade suggesting that to get around the disruption, maybe those businesses should just pack up and head to the EU. For a start, there are charges for exporting into the EU that will cut into profit margins. Then there's all the extra paperwork and bureaucracy for items being transported into the EU from the UK and out again. The different paperwork needed from Britain to Northern Ireland and back again, all of which costs time and therefore money and adds on to the cost of items. You might have seen the vids of the lorry drivers getting their sandwiches confiscated by Dutch border guards because personal imports of meat and dairy are now banned under the new customs rules. But on the plus side for Europeans, this means the EU is spared ever having to see battered egg and spam face Nigel Farage ever again as he simply just won't be allowed. One of the big promises about Brexit from politicians like twice-disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox was that it would cut red tape. But what wasn't made clear was that they had to cut it so they could make it go even further because it's a nightmare getting more red tape imported in for everything they need it for. There's actually so much red tape at the borders right now that had previous Prime Minister and de-promotional cardboard cutout Theresa May still been in charge, there'd have been none left for all of her red lines and there's absolutely no way Indiana Jones would be flying across any maps anytime soon. Then on top of all of that, any customers in the EU that buy British produce are now having to pay VAT on it in advance, which means that, well, they aren't, because why would they bother when they could just get things from somewhere else where they don't have to do that? Hence, there are absolutely massive delays at all the ports with loads and loads of lorries backlogged, which the managing director of the Road Haulage Association said would be headlines in any other year, but of course, selfish Rover keeps nabbing the spotlight. The lorries that are stuck in the Kent car park are being charged to be there. The government's system to work out how much you have to pay in customs charges you to use it in the first place when it's working, that is, and hasn't been overwhelmed like it was last week because it's rubbish. And ultimately, most small to medium businesses, food exporters and fish uh, people, mer people, is that right? Anyway, them, they're losing far more money than they're making and for six times the hassle. And that sort of leaves them wondering just why they bother in the first place. Hence, you either move your whole business to the EU, which benefits Britain by... um meaning there's more unemployed people to keep the other unemployed people company during the weekdays, I guess? I don't know. I mean, according to MBs such as, oh no, he's been dead since 1873, John Redwood, this should just mean that we grow more things in Britain, which, look, in terms of less miles for food to travel and boosting British farms, that is actually a great idea, John. Except, just because he looks like a vegetable that barely survived the winter, most others won't. And we're not known for our thriving all-year-round crop harvest in this country. Also, doesn't this sort of tread on the idea of a global Britain, or was the reality of that that everyone in this country has to pretend there's nothing else past the shores and that our country is the only place on the planet? But, look, uh, there is still time for things to change, and our reason one. Whether or not this government will, when the Prime Minister has previously said fuck business or there's more concern about patriotic fish than people's livelihoods, remains to be seen. What is likely is that this will continue to go on for all the rest of our lives and everyone else's lives and all the rest of time. And phase 12 of Brexit will be announced in 2028. There'll probably be several mini-series and a theme park before anyone, anyone in the government at all, realises that actually this has definitely been done to death now and maybe we should try something new. And now, back to Joanna. It's really strange. I I find it very strange. And I, I want, you know, did you expect your photo i know it's a funny question because no one ever expects when things make an impact like your picture did um obviously it's not completely expected but did you you know uh expect it to grab people in the way that it did and i, I wonder if part of that is that it was one of the images that we did see at, at, at the time never in a million years thought that it would have gone as far as it did i um 
I must admit I was um, full of anxiety when I was doing that shoot. I'm not sure why it felt really important. Um, I'm normally quite a relaxed person and I do remember feeling extremely anxious, but um, I'd, I just did not expect it to, to go as far as it did and certainly not to be painted onto the side of a, a building in Manchester. I think anybody sort of looking at your work and saying no this is important <laughs> we we want to hear more of this or we want to hear about this is I mean you just think why does anybody want to hear <laughs> something from little <laughs> old me so I yeah I mean it was pretty remarkable that people wanted to see that but like you say maybe it was because there was a lot of silence at the time um there's something quite profound about how silent everything was though isn't there it's it's quite a um it was quite a moment for that image to speak and I think because it was um because it was painted in Manchester at the time that Manchester was going through what it was going through as well I think that amplified it because there was a lot of cameras pointed towards Manchester when that painting went up and they did such an amazing job of that painting as well and it looked so like so like my photo I can't believe how they managed to do it but yeah I I don't know I, I part of me wishes there was a just a bit more communication about what was going on at the time even for me you know I'm a nurse I can imagine what was going on in the wards but I I would have liked to have seen a bit more from this country about what was actually happening yeah it, it really feels like um you know not to sort of dwell on the misinformation stuff but the, the amount of people that are sort of oh it's a hoax or blah 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 and I, I sort of feel like it can't have helped that there there it wasn't on the news saying this is actually what's happening look at this this is awful you know and um it wasn't it's, it just it wasn't real for a lot of people because we couldn't see that it was real yeah I mean there's a lot of conspiracy theories, isn't there? But I can reassure people that we are definitely <laughs> struggling. This is real. It's you know, um, just just be ask about your photos a little bit more. Did you know? Were you planning to do sort of portraits of your colleagues before the coronavirus? You know, did it did it just happen to be that <laughs> you you started to take these pictures as things happened, or was it something like a spur of the moment? You realised that something quite big was uh, you know and, and concerning was happening and you thought that this was an important moment to capture so that image was actually initially commissioned by the telegraph um they couldn't get any access to hospitals they were just completely blocked left right and center all photographers found that they just couldn't get access to hospitals someone that i knew um jason morris came um to me not physically came to me but um sent me an email saying that um, he knew my work um, because he went to one of my exhibitions when I was a student and just asking, he said, I remember your photography series uh, of NHS portraits. Are you able to um, help us out with a feature that we have on the NHS? And to be honest, at the time, I had only purely been thinking about the pandemic and about what this meant for me as a nurse and it was more like a light was switched on I had to think oh actually god yes this is really important this is really important to share of course yes I definitely want to be a part of this but it did take somebody from media to kick me into 
reality because otherwise I don't think I would have I think I would have just been concentrating on what I was doing yeah I, I mean I'm, I'm certain you would have had lots of other things on your mind at the same time um but I mean it is uh, you know it's remarkable how as I said it cuts through and I, how do you you know, do you feel that art and, and imagery like that, you, you sort of mentioned that we're very much in a culture where images are everything on social media, on news and everything, but sometimes a picture like that can make an impact far more than other things like news can or, or other information um, and the way it's broadcast. What is it about, what is it about art and photography, you know, that can, that can do that? And is it, is it important? Should we be looking at this as something uh, as a better way to reach people about things? I think when you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of images coming at you from all angles, it is quite important to maybe listen to people who are a bit slower, people who don't throw loads and loads and loads of information at you, who take time, who consider what they're doing, consider their approach. They slow down, they talk to people and they take care of exactly what they're trying to communicate I think so there is a small series of images that surrounds that image of Melanie but I actually think that she potentially has more power as a solo image purely because of that because you can communicate more by saying less sometimes by actually sitting and thinking and spending time i think that's really important yeah it allows you to take it all in doesn't it and it allows you to think about the situation a lot more than a sort of constant barrage of just news headlines and uh, and what to think and it's I, I definitely felt that i spent quite some time looking at a picture mm. and I, I think the rest of the nhs portraits are also just brilliant um and i highly recommend that the listeners check them out um and I wondered, is this, obviously you said, you know, things are incredibly hectic in your, in your nursing job and in, in, in the rest of your life. Um, but have you, you know, have you got plans to do uh, more photography on a, on a certain angle? Are you going to take more about the NHS? Do you want to move completely away from it? And has the reaction to the Melanie photo made you change how you approach taking pictures? I think when I was a student, I was maybe a little too concerned about always shooting on film and, making sure that I tick the right student boxes. But when it came to shooting Melanie, I could only access my digital camera and I, I couldn't, you couldn't get film processed. And sometimes maybe made the excuses a little to myself that I, you know, I can't shoot, you know, I, I don't have access to uh, film processing. So I think to me, it showed me that it doesn't necessarily matter what medium you use it actually matters what message you're trying to convey. So that was important, a lesson for me to learn. I think that my NHS portraits will probably be with me for life. I can't imagine ever stopping photographing the most important people that I've ever met in my entire life and have the privilege of working with. I feel like they should have a platform. Um, I feel like they should speak. I feel like they have things to say they have stories to tell and quite often it's written all over their face and if you spend enough time with them then you can capture that and I'm a bit addicted to it I have to admit and I think that photographing Melanie has reignited that passion 
So yes, I will definitely stick to that project. I think that's going to be there forever. But I, it's also reminded me that maybe I do have things to say that people want to listen to. So it's given me a little boost. Definitely carry on. Good. That's really good to hear. Um, and just to the your other career, um, how are you feeling about the future of nursing, the future of NHS? Are you just sort of taking it, I guess, day by day at the moment? Or, um, you know, are you... Or are there concerns about the not just the next few months, but you know what this is going to do to healthcare in the next year or so? I think I'd be surprised if there was an NHS worker that you would speak to that wouldn't say that they were a bit afraid for the future of the NHS. I'd be very surprised if those people exist, and I'd also be surprised if you spoke to someone who hadn't considered possibly quitting their job <laughs> recently if not, you know, in consider doing it in the future. I mean, generally, the NHS is under enormous amounts of pressure. It doesn't get the attention and the, um, the money that it needs. So, yes, it, I mean, I do wonder all the time. I think all the time about whether this is the right career for me, whether... Whether, you know, whether we're still going to have an NHS in five years' time, I'm not sure. But um, I hope that this moment in time galvanises the NHS in people's minds as being something that is so, so precious that it is worth fighting for. And when we stand up as healthcare professionals and we march or we, you know, we, we ask for fair pay, fair pay, not excessive pay. We ask for fair pay. We ask for being able to get our lunch breaks. We ask for, you know, being able to go to the loo <laughs> during a shift. When we ask for those things, I just really hope that other people stand with us I hope that when we are allowed to march again you know let's hope the vaccinations work and we can all start getting back to something resembling normal when we do march again there are a lot more people standing with us because they recognize the work that we did in this time I really hope so too really hope so too and um, I wish you all the best for that. and thank you for taking time out of your weekend as well to speak to me when I'm sure you're really in need of weekends at the moment I very much appreciate it um, the, the one last question I have to ask which is uh, just what I ask every guest in, in a hope to further information which is that apart from yourself and all your photos um, who, who do you recommend that listeners read or follow or watch just I mean not just about uh, info on the reality of what the NHS is under but also artists or, or any what what are you going to what are you reading what's what would you like other people to know about um one of my biggest inspirations throughout uh my photography has been one of my colleagues Eva Vermandel she doesn't have a um she doesn't have an Instagram or anything like that I, it's, it's exactly what I was saying to you it's types of people who really spend time um moving through life looking at what's important and making really beautiful work about it um, and she's been a really big support to me during this pandemic emotionally and uh, also 
she's just a fantastic artist and I think people should check her out. Thank you so much to Johanna for having the time to chat, especially so last minute. Um, you can find Johanna's photography on her website at johannachurchill.com, including all her remarkable NHS portrait series that really are worth a look. Um, you can also find her on Instagram and Twitter under her name too. And the photographer that she mentions, um, Eva Vermandel, can be found at evavermandel.com. And I spent about an hour looking through her incredible pictures on there the other day. I would totally recommend it as well. And Joanna also asked that I share the Royal College of Nursing's petition for fair pay for nursing, um, which if you could please sign, um, that would be amazing. As uh, Joanna said in the interview, it is the very, very least they deserve for all that they do. Uh, I'll pop a link to that in the podcast blurb and I'll be tweeting and Facebooking it out this week too. So do take a look out for that. Big thank you too to Joshua Nietzsche who helped put me in charge with Joanna in the first place. Uh, That is very much appreciated. As always, any suggestions for who to have on this show or what topics to find someone to talk to about um, are appreciated. And if you have one of them suggestions or even several, but not loads yet, you know, know your limits. I mean, if you send me 304 recommendations, chances are high that I'll read page one, then go and get a cuppa and lose your email under some promotional thing about how my new favourite thing is something I'll never buy and actively hate. So I'm just saying one or two ideas is great and that's enough. And you can, of course, send those one or two ideas to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the regularly underused Partly Political Broadcast account on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or like Joanna did, why not take a powerful and evocative photo, except yours would just be conveying your suggestion for a podcast guest, and as the picture is given the acclaim it deserves and is recreated in stunning murals, I'll end up inviting you on the show and you'll only be able to talk about the person you were suggesting I had on, and it'll be a really weird and disjointed sort of meta-conversation that none of us will enjoy, and I'll still end up not speaking to the person that you actually intended me to in the first place. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for lending me your ears, and I promise to return them now in the condition they arrived in and well within the lending term limits. No, I promise that scratch was there when they arrived, yes, and the doodles, and the bits where it looks like other bits of ears have been stuck onto them to cover up for bits where I may have lost bits of ears. But trust me, that is how they arrived in the case, all right? If you did enjoy any of what you heard, even if it was just the adverts that don't even feature me, then why not tell all those other humans in your life to give it a swig and listen and subscribe to this show on any of the podcast apps that they like. Perhaps they and you could also give it a big fat five-star review with some nice words of your choice on those very same podcast apps and potentially, should you so fancy, donate to the Kofi Patreon or Acast supporter sites too. Mega thank yous to Acast, my brother the last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when the government release a route map for the reopening of schools, but on closer inspection, it's revealed to just be a crude crayon drawing to where Boris Johnson buried a porn mag somewhere in the Olympic Park. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by this government public service message. Look them in the eyes and tell them they have really nice eyes, but look, it's tricky to go on dates right now. So how about you grab a coffee whenever this is all over, if there's anywhere to still grab a coffee anymore, as it's likely everything will be out of business by then. So maybe you and I can go foraging for nuts. Look them in the eyes and tell them, yes, you can see what it is. It's an eyelash. And if they just hold still, you can possibly brush it out and it should be fine. Look them in the eyes and say, as much as I love you, I really can't wait until I can go somewhere else for a day because I've lost all concept of time. And hang on, are you asleep with your eyes open? Wow, that's weird, but fair enough. Look them in the eyes and say, maybe you should get your eyes tested. You know you can drive hundreds of miles to do that right now and the Prime Minister will say you're a brilliant dad. Stay at home. Oh no, you are. No, Robert Jenrick, I don't know which one you have to be in. Just choose one and fuck off. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.